right, if you have a Bible or a device, <laughs> open it up to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thess chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, had, uh, in the midst of a tremendous amount of persecution and trouble, had gone with Paul, it was he and Silas, uh, also a guy they picked up along the way named Timothy, uh, and then another guy they picked up along the way at a city called Troas, a seaport in the Aegean Sea, he responded to the call of God to go to Macedonia in Europe, now to take the gospel to Europe. And there they went to a city called Philippi and they planted a church in eastern Macedonia. So things had gotten pretty rough there. I wish we had time to go into it. Uh, you can look in, in Acts chapter 17 and uh, 16 and 17 there. Uh, if you want to look at the background, but things have been really rough. I mean, a huge amount of persecution broke out. Paul and Silas ended up getting beaten with rods by the city magistrates, thrown into prison, and got through some uh, really remarkable circumstances, got them delivered out of the jail, and uh, they left Luke in Philippi, and on they went, the three men now, Paul and Silas and Timothy, on to, they made the about roughly 100-mile trek westward to a city called Thessalonica, which was the capital city of Macedonia in that day. There they spent at least three weeks. We're told the, in the book of Acts that they spent three Sabbaths there, and it could have been upwards of a couple of months. We just know that the three Sabbaths are mentioned, but it wasn't a very long amount of time uh, as they evangelized the people in Thessalonica and planted a church in that city. <clears throat> it was quickly evident to them that the Holy Spirit was being poured out in significant ways. Uh, the gospel of Christ was spreading like wildfire throughout the city and beyond the city throughout the whole region of Macedonia. And, it, and God was reaching the largely pagan population that was there at that time. Soon the whole region of Macedonia was being evangelized as a great many souls were abandoning the Greek and Roman pantheons of gods. Remember, they had a zillion gods uh, and they were converting to Christianity. So at the same time, the affliction that Paul and Silas would endure at the hands of the Jews, also the city officials in Thessalonica, would be immediate and severe. We're told at one point by the time that they had to leave town that they were being hunted. And if they'd have caught them, it would not have gone well. So as a result, they had to leave town quickly and they traveled to a nearby city named Berea. Remember, we talked about that. And in the book of Acts, we're told that the Bereans were more noble because they searched the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul and his companions were sharing with them were so. You know, they were checking it out, which is a great practice for us. So trouble followed. Very quickly, actually, the Jews from Thessalonica found out that they were nearby, and so they chased them down in Berea, and they had to leave there as well. So Paul then, he went by himself to Athens, uh, left Timothy and Silas in that area, traveled to Athens alone, and then on to Corinth, where he would be there until he would eventually be reunited uh, and, and hooked back up, with Timothy and with Silas. So that's the background of what's going on here in 1 Thessalonians 3. So last week we looked at the first five verses of chapter 3 as we discussed what it is to be appointed to affliction. 
If you were with us, we looked at that. That's what he says in the first part of the, and we'll look at it here in a moment. Uh, what it is that he says, look, you're appointed to affliction. Trouble is going to be there. And Paul actually lays out there that that's not the exception to the Christian life. That's the rule. That's the norm. Times of peace are things that we enjoy, but that that's the exception in this life that we've been called to. So the entire church at Thessalonica, it wasn't just Paul and his companions that were being afflicted. The entire church was coming under heavy fire. They, the, the circumstances that they were in were very severe. There was a lot of persecution, a lot of affliction being heaped upon this, this infant, this baby church that he had planted. Uh, and so and also the circumstances that surrounded Paul's hasty departure, they left him with huge concerns. He had, we'll see here in the text, it, it, it just comes out of the text that he was greatly burdened for this church, this infant church that he had had so little time to begin to plant and to nurture. So he's concerned about the welfare of the people and the questions he must have had. I mean, how were they holding up in the face of this persecution? How could they be discipled? He he had so little time and he had a great burden to get back to them. We looked at that. He says here earlier in this letter that he tried several times, but Satan hindered him from doing so. He wondered how vulnerable they were, as we looked at last week, for Satan to deceive them, to draw them away. Now understand that the Apostle Paul, for him, saving souls was a critical part of his ministry. However, he was more than an evangelist. He was also a shepherd. He cared deeply for the welfare of these people after their decision to follow Christ. Now we're going to start here. We're going to read and recap the first five verses of chapter 3. Uh, we'll do that together as we start this morning in order to better understand the context of what we're going to be looking at in verses 6 through 13 as we wrap up chapter 3 this morning. So 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and send Timothy, our brother and minister, or servant of God, for our, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that you that we would suffer tribulation, trouble, just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, we, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So in verse one, when he says we could no longer endure it, he's talking about the weight of responsibility that he had towards these new believers. He's burdened. Now remember too, I mean, these guys, they couldn't just fire off a text when it suited them. I mean, uh, we have such great conveniences with instant communication. I mean, globally, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I remember Darren was in a plane flying over Africa and he, he rode in on our live stream, just enjoying the Sunday service as I fly over Africa. You know, it's like, <laughs> the, 
That couldn't happen with these guys, obviously. And so there would have been a large amount of time that would, that would have taken place between the time that Paul was driven out of Thessalonica and then he, because he could no longer endure it, he's saying, I just, I can't handle this. I need to send Timothy to, to make sure that you guys are taken care of. So there would have been a time lapse there, there, but there would have been a greater time lapse from the time he sent Timothy till the time that he was reunited with Timothy and Silas there at Corinth. Up to months, we don't know exactly how long it was, but it was a considerable amount of time. And we're see, we'll see here that he spent a great deal of that time in prayer for this church. Remember, Paul is like a father to these people. Uh, he, and he's experiencing the stress of loving them and not knowing how they're holding up. And, and uh, folks, I, as I was preparing for this, I, I was thinking about situations that I've had in my life where I didn't know the outcome of a thing. Have you ever gone through, you don't know the outcome of something, and especially when it has to do with somebody that you care deeply for and, and were forced to wait? That's what's going on here. He doesn't have any choice but to wait and to pray and to trust God for the situation regarding the Thessalonians. And that's what drives him to send Timothy, uh, not only to encourage him to establish them, but as we see in verse 5, he, he says, when I could no longer endure it again, he says that in verse 1 and verse 5, uh, he says, I want to know your faith. I want to understand how you're doing, how you're holding up in the midst of the persecution, the affliction that you're enduring. So all of that brings us to verse 6, where we're going to start this morning. So verse 6, uh, he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. So if Paul had been holding his breath (laughs) as he waited for news about the condition of this Thessalonian church, here he relates the moment that he heaves a sigh of relief. He's like, okay, they're doing all right. Okay, I can relax, all right? Yeah, this is a great report. We see in verses 6 and 7 that Paul's relieved and he's comforted by a couple of things. First, he's relieved that they're still walking with the Lord and that they haven't bought into Satan's lie that life's just too hard when someone follows Jesus. And that's a lie that he tells people today. We see in the parable of the sower, as I mentioned last week, that one of the conditions of the human heart that Jesus speaks of there is that when trouble and affliction and persecution comes, they're out of there. And so that's not so with these people. And he is greatly relieved. Secondly, he's comforted that in the face, uh, in the fact that their faith is growing, that he sees the proof of that faith. And that's that they're walking in love. The love that they have for Jesus and the love that they have for each other, and also the love that they have for Paul and his companions. Timothy relates back to him, and he says, all of these things are in place. These people are doing well. They're walking with the Lord. They're walking in love. They miss us. They would love to have us come back. Verse 8, uh, Paul, and this is part of the relief that, he, that he's experiencing at this moment, he says, for now we live. <sighs> if you stand fast in the Lord. So Timothy's report had brought Paul some much-needed encouragement, confirmed to him that his work among the Thessalonians had not been in vain. 
And I'll tell you what, folks, uh, and it's something we pray for Selena, it's something I pray for anybody that's involved in any aspect of ministry, discouragement is a thing. God has, you know, he, it's such a great privilege to serve him. And one of the enemy's primary ploys is if he can discourage the worker, if he can discourage the servant of God, he can hinder the work. And so Paul's grateful that that's not happening with these people. He's encouraged and it affects his own work as well. Uh, as, a, as a result of this report, he's revitalized. Uh, that they rose above the, the, the present distress and persecution uh, that they had. He says, I'm rising above the present distress and persecution I have here in Corinth. Because guess what? Trouble follows. If you're serving the Lord, the enemy doesn't like it, and he will do what he can to hinder the work. That's just part of it. And yet, we serve a God that is far stronger, that is far more sufficient in the light of that trouble. It's part of what we're going to be talking about as we go here. So Paul, he's revitalized, he's, he's energized, he's ready to go, and he wants to continue his mission in Corinth with renewed zeal. The other thing about that is if you look in the New Testament, you see the things that this man went through <laughs> as an apostle of Christ. You look and you see the hardship that he endured. There are a couple of lists. We don't have time to go into them. Or I mean, he goes into great detail about the things that he suffered. And folks, he, he went through more than any of us will ever go through. I, and, and I'm convinced of that. I mean, we may go through some really significantly hard times. And, and I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying, you look at this guy. He was prepared to go through it for the sake of the gospel. The only caveat that he had was that he needed to know that his work was producing fruit. And if, if he saw that there was fruit to the work that he was doing for the Lord, he was good. So uh, verse 9 we read, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? So here Paul, he asked a rhetorical question. What adequate thanks can we offer to God for the tremendous blessing of Timothy's report. He's, he knows that all the credit goes to the Lord. He's humbled. He feels totally incapable of giving thanks to God. He, he, he's saying, I, I'm at a loss of words. Uh, I don't know. I, I, the manner in, in which God is working in these people, I am so thankful that I, I don't know how to express the thanks that I have for the way that God's working in the lives of the Thessalonians. And folks, there's a vital principle in this for you and I as well. And we need to understand that God is the one who does the doing, and therefore God is the one who gets the glory. A very, very important that we understand that. He may use us in the process, like he's using Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but he is the one who is accomplishing the work. And we need to be careful that we don't begin to view our ministries as our own personal success stories. Like, oh, look at me. Oh, I'm so greatly used of God. It's, it's, it, it kind of makes me gag when I, see, when I see people do that. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. God does not share his glory. He will not share his glory with another. And we need to be careful that we understand who gets the glory. I remember one time I was at a men's retreat and we had a worship leader there and, and, and he had been with our church for a couple of years, but we waited for a long time before we put him into leading worship and and he said, so John, the whole time I was doing secular music, I did it to call attention to myself. 
I mean, I was out there, you know, I'm playing the guitar, I'm doing all this. And, and, and he said, and now as a worship leader, I'm trying to divert and to deflect attention from coming to me. And, and I said, well, Jamie, let me tell you what I would suggest. And he said, what's that? I said, just when, when people compliment me or when they have something to say, I, and yeah, everybody likes to be affirmed. And that's, all, that's I mean, that's not, not a bad thing. But at the same time, I hold up a mirror. And so if somebody goes, oh, great study or whatever, I'll hold up a mirror and I deflect that upwards. And I'll say, thank you, praise the Lord, because it's his work. And I said, you need to just be in an attitude and have a heart that you understand. And I could tell by the conversation I'm having with this guy, he understood that it wasn't his work, that he was a vessel through which God was working. And that's the attitude that we need to have as we serve the Lord. Uh, there's another thing about this too. We also need to understand that the areas where God has called and equipped and gifted us are the areas where we can be most critical of other people. I remember as a young Bible teacher, you know, out of Bible college, man, I'm raring to go. Yeah, oh gee, they asked me to teach and all this stuff. And I would sit there when other people were teaching and I started to kind of silently grade them. <laughs> and I knew you'd laugh at that. But I mean, I would sit there and go, well, yeah, he really missed a good application there. Oh, he should have done that here. Oh, well, boy, oh boy, he kind of screwed up that past. You know, and I just had this critical spirit. And the Lord spoke to my heart one day very clearly. He said, John, stop it. You need to have a teachable spirit. And, you know, you're not the one who I called and gifted and equipped to give that message. You need to trust that I'm working in them as well as I'm working in you. And I'll tell you what, I was deeply convicted. At that point, I just started praying, Lord, give me a teachable spirit. I don't care who's teaching, unless it's heresy, of course. We're <laughs> call that out. But I mean, if somebody is doing a study and they're teaching, they're going with what God has given them. I rejoice. I rejoice. And I don't want to be critical because God has gifted or called or equipped me in a particular area and be critical of others who are not doing it right, quote unquote, air quotes on that. So be careful. The point in this is we must give God the glory for his work among people. Regardless of the ministry we have, we need to have a godly perspective. What our role is in the eternal scheme of things, it's his work. In verses 10 to 13, now moving on here in 1 Thess 3, in verses 10 to 13, Paul makes four requests in his fervent prayers for the Thessalonians. You know, often, you know, especially in small group ministry, we'll say, hey, does anybody have a prayer request? Well, he's got four of them here. The first is he prays for the Thessalonians that he could come and that he could see them again face to face. He also prays to be able to, com- to complete what is lacking in their faith. And he prays that their love might be magnified to others. And finally, he prays that their hearts would be established, blameless, and in holiness. He wants to see Christ formed in them. So let's read verses nine, uh, verse 9 again, and, uh, but with 10, because it's one statement here. He says, For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So Paul's first request in this 
extraordinary prayer was that he might once again see the Thessalonians in person. And I have to believe that as he writes this, this is a prayer that he had had for months. This is something that had been in his heart for a long time. Because he couldn't get to them, he writes a letter. That's how come we can read it here this morning. God was working in the midst of all of these things. He was working in the midst of the affliction and the hardship and the persecution and Satan thwarting him from getting back to these people. So he writes. Secondly, the Greek word for perfect in verse 10 means to complete or to make fit or to put in order. So having received the report for that they were doing well, Paul's prayer, he wants to get back to them and to continue to equip them. He says, I want to pick up where I left off. Well, that turns out it wasn't God's will. That was what Paul wanted to do. His heart was right, but that wouldn't be what took place. So in verse 11, he says, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. So he talks about abounding in love among you inwardly, but then also outwardly, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So while Paul had strong aspirations to go back to Thessalonica, it'd be five years before he would be directed back to them. It wouldn't be until he was on his third missionary journey that he would be able to go back and to, to visit these people again. So he prays for their spiritual growth, that they would increase and abound in love, as I mentioned, both inwardly to the church and outwardly to the community, to the people around them. In the meantime, in being unable to get to them personally, he writes a second letter to the Thessalonians. This is his first we have, uh, in, uh, obviously, in, in the New Testament, there's First and Second Thessalonians. He still can't get to them, so he writes another letter. And in that letter, once again, he boasts of them being a model church. He does that in the beginning of this letter. He says, you guys are a model church. Man, God is working, and He is the Spirit's being poured out. You know, the church is growing. It's exploding across the region and all of that. Well, again, in the second letter, he has similar uh, a similar compliment to them. He says, you guys are a model church because of the love that you have and, and your growth in Christ in the midst of ongoing suffering and persecution. He cites it there as well. This church is going through it. The people are being persecuted. They're being subjected to all kinds of really harsh uh, treatment. So he he speaks in that sense as he speaks to their hearts By extension, God speaks to our hearts. He says, I want you to be established in blamelessness and holiness before God at Jesus' coming. What he's talking about there is that Christ would be formed in us. Folks, that is so important that we understand. It's not I, but Christ in me is my only hope for glory, the Bible tells us. So the question here in verse 13 is, is he speaking of the second coming or the rapture of the church? And the answer to that question is, yes, he is. Uh, We can look at that as both. Now, the second coming of Christ is at the end of the Great Tribulation, that seven years of hell on earth that is yet to happen. Now, that event casts a long shadow down into our day as we await the rapture of the church prior to the Tribulation. 
which we'll look at in the next chapter. Now we're going to talk about that and we'll do a deep dive on, on, the, on eschatology, on the order of things as God's word puts it out there. And, and we'll take a look at that more thoroughly then. But the point in all of that is, is that we're waiting for his return. For believers, it'll be that time, that moment that we're caught up together with him in the air, where the dead rise first and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up with him together in the air. When we hear the trumpet of the archangel and we're out of here. And there are some wonderful things in store for us. We're going to talk about, when we look at that, we're going to talk about things like the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's where Jesus himself wraps himself with an apron and he serves us. I, 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 it just blows me away when I think about it. The point is, we're waiting for the Lord's return. I want to shift here. Normally, when I wrap up a passage, I like to look at three or four points uh, to just to, to pull out of it ways to apply God's word to our lives. But today I'm going to do one. <laughs> and it's an important one, though. Uh, I want to wrap it up. I want to look at something that seeps through the passage here. So part of what I like to do when I teach the Bible is I, I, and when I study as well, I call it zoom out, zoom in. And uh, I, I sort of picture it. And if you're younger, you probably don't know a telephoto lens. But, you know, I used to have actually have a real camera, not a phone. And I had a telephoto lens, and, and I, I had I, this one lens I had. It was like this super long, big honking thing. And I could zoom way in on something and, and get a really close look at it. Well, as we zoom in on God's Word, as we study His Word, it might be a word study where we look at a particular word because Koine Greek, the, the language that the New Testament was written in, it's street Greek, not classical Greek, but Koine Greek, uh, is a very rich language. It's so rich that, that English words don't often do a lot of justice to it. There's just richness and, and color to the wording. So, and I like to, and some pastors don't, but I do. I love doing word studies and, and digging down and saying, okay, well, what does that mean? How does that, uh, what does that, how does that connect with the passage that we're in? So that's zooming in. Zooming out, on the other hand, uh, is when we look at the broader context of a passage, and we say, okay, let's see if there's an extra layer of understanding in that. And that's what we're going to do here with 1 Thessalonians 3. We're going to zoom out. We're going to take a broad look at, because there are some really wonderful things that come out of this as we do. So last week we looked at the fact, as I mentioned, that the Thessalonians were appointed to affliction. Uh, the trouble is the rule, not the exception in the Christian life. Uh, this week we see Timothy's report uh, that even though they're going through really difficult circumstances, being persecuted, in the midst of that trouble, the Thessalonians were actually doing really well. So how do you reconcile the fact that these people could experience extreme hardship on the one hand, and at the same time actually excel in their relationships with the Lord and with other people on the other hand? And I think we're going to go to John chapter 16 because Jesus himself gives us insight into the mechanisms that are at work here as we connect both of those together and, and, and understand how is it that life could be so hard and how is it that they could be doing so well? Because in human terms, they seem 
polar opposites. In human terms, it's like you can't be doing badly and well at the same time. But in God's economy, I'm here to tell you, you can. And we're going to look at that and we're going to apply that to our own lives and our own situations and circumstances as well. So in John chapter 16, we're, we're going to break into the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with his men. All right? Uh, so it's after the Last Supper. Uh, supper's ended. He's finished talking with them. We, it's called the Upper Room Discourse, where he, has this, he lays a lot of things out to his guys while they're in the Upper Room. That's where he washes their feet, and it's where he begins to tell them, look, I'm going to be leaving and they're scandal. They're like, what? What do you mean you're leaving? They thought he was going to set up his kingdom then. They thought, you know, remember James and John's mother went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, could my sons have like an office next to yours? You know, when you set up your kingdom. I mean, she, they thought that that was what was going to happen. They thought that that was the purpose of Messiah was to come and save them from the Romans. They didn't understand that he came to save us from ourselves. He came to save us from our sins that we needed to have eternal redemption before we have any temporal redemption. And so he's, he's, he's laying out to them, look, I'm going to be leaving. And so this is somewhere between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you understand Jerusalem, Mount Zion is where the, the upper room was. And it's a hill up above the Temple Mount. And they're leaving there. If you come down the hill, the Temple Mount is right here. Come down the hill a little more because the Temple Mount is right on the edge of the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Ravine. And and so you got to come down to the Kidron Ravine, kind of go north a little bit, and then cross the ravine to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. So it was a bit of a walk. And so it's the middle of the night. They're walking through the city, and Jesus is talking to his men. And so breaking into the middle of it here in John 16... Uh, I want to look at something that I, I really believe brings additional insight, understanding to our studies here at 1 Thess 3. John sixteen twenty, He says, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow, pay attention to this, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Interesting. Now he gives an example. He says, a woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. Again, pay attention. He says, your joy and your joy, no one will take from you. And in that day, you'll ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give. And until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I'm going to drop down to verse 33 in the same chapter, John 16, because Jesus gets to the point there. Again, I would love to unpack all of this. (laughs) I am so resisting (laughs) jumping into it with both feet because this is a wonderful passage. I encourage you to study it out for yourselves. But in verse 33, he says, These things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. And he goes on to say, In the world you'll have tribulation, trouble. But be of good cheer. Cheer up. I've overcome the world. 
Now, how does that connect with chapter 3 in First Thess? Well, remember, chapter 3 begins with the word, therefore. And that prompts us to look at what had just been said. So in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul, speaking about the Thessalonians, he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. In verse 9, here in chapter 3, Paul also speaks of joy and rejoicing. So what's the connection? Now, I believe our understanding of these things begins with an honest question. This is not a question that's intended to condemn, but it's one that needs to be asked. And here's the question. Is Jesus number one in your life? Is he first? If he's not, I'll guarantee you that when you go through trials, your focus will be on the difficulty itself. And that leads me to another question. Do we live in a joyful world? And I knew you would chuckle because we all know that this is anything but a joy-filled world. Trouble and strife, hardship, persecution, trials, part and parcel to living in this world. Of course we don't live in a joyful world. That's why Jesus doesn't say, in the world you'll have peace. No, he says, in the world you'll have trouble. So if Jesus is not first in my life, when trouble comes, it won't be possible for me to experience any aspect of peace or any aspect of joy. It's not possible. The reason that Paul was so excited at Timothy's report that the Thessalonians were doing well wasn't because their persecution and their affliction had settled down, that it had gone away. No, it was because they were putting Jesus first. And as a result, they were supernaturally enabled to handle the troubles that were coming their way. Understand that. That's a principle for us. Oh, I'll tell you, church, I pray that we can get this. I truly do. Because it's so important. Uh, and frankly, like you, I don't always get it right. And I pray that the time, because I, I, something hits me and, and I'm prone to react. And, and, so, and my prayer is, Lord, let the time be shorter from the time that I react in the flesh to the time that the point where I take these things and I respond in the spirit. When my kids were growing up, if they were getting at it with one another, I would say, hey, take it to high ground. And they knew that what I meant in that was take that into the spiritual level. Take that thing you're arguing about and take it to the Lord. And, and, and as they did that, they got perspective on whatever they were scrapping about. Sometimes, sometimes they ended up getting a spanking too. But my point is, my point is, is that he needs to be first. Um, and, and I don't always get it right. And yet my, I pray that God will shorten that time, that I can get to the point quicker, that I say, okay, Lord, I need to put you first in this situation. I need to put you ahead of whatever this harsh circumstance is or this relationship issue or this financial issue or whatever it is. And you can fill in the blank with what's going on in your life. Is Jesus first in your life? Because if he's not, you're going to look at the problem 
instead of look at him. Why do you think the Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 8 that the joy of the Lord is my strength? Yeah, I remember as a young Christian thinking that's kind of an odd statement. It's a very religious sounding statement. It's kind of an odd thing. Why would joy, why would something like joy be something that is my strength? But over the years, I've come to understand that joy, folks, it is not the same as happy. It is way different than happy. Uh, And I've shared this before. I'll share it again. It's really important in our understanding as to why the Thessalonians were going through exceedingly difficult times at doing well and walking in love. Happy or happiness is communicated to me by my circumstances. It is circumstantially driven. If I have good circumstances, I'm a happy guy. If I have lousy circumstances, I'm unhappy. (laughs) And that's just how it is. So joy, on the other hand, is communicated to me by the Holy Spirit. So how does it, what's the mechanism there? What does that mean? How, How is this joy communicated to me by God? I mean, that sounds good. I mean, that's something a preacher would say. But practically speaking, how does that work? In John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Interesting. Folks, joy and peace are aspects of who Jesus is. I want you to get this. They are not things that he possesses. They are part of who he is. He's the embodiment of peace. He's the embodiment of joy. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that that Jesus that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And when he had made an end of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Did he look forward to the cross? He sweat drops of blood as he looked at it. He wasn't happy. What was the joy set before him? You and I. Joy is different than happy. It's his joy, his peace, that are imparted to me through the agency of the Holy Spirit. That's part of why around here, around this church, one of the things that we like to say is that we're learning to think like Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes in and reorients the way I look at my life, the way I look at circumstances around me, he reorients what's important in my life. He brings the fruit of the Spirit. That's why the Thessalonian church is an an excellent example of this principle. As we read here, they were appointed to affliction. We also read in chapter 3 that they had a load of tribulation, trouble to deal with in their lives. If whether or not they experienced joy and peace in their life was dependent on their circumstances, they wouldn't have any. Very often, neither would we. There would be none. That's why Jesus says, in me, you'll have peace. But in the world, you'll have trouble. He says, cheer up. I've overcome the world. You don't have to buy into that. So I look at the ninefold fruit of the Spirit as singular and plural. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Memorize that in Bible school. I'm always proud of it too when I recite it. It's like, yeah, I got it right. But truly, the fruit of the Spirit is love, period. Manifesting as joy manifesting as peace, manifesting as patience with which we have little at time. See, that's the fruit of God's spirit. That's where he is 
He is forming Christ in me. The fruit of his spirit is this thing called joy that we're talking about. And it's not something that he possesses and hands to me. It's part of who he is. And when he takes up residence in my life, he says, that's a birthright. That's something that you can possess yourself. It's something that you own now because my Holy Spirit manifests that as part of the love that I have in you. That's how we get joy. It all comes down to love. Love God, love others. Now, a lawyer asked Jesus one time, and, and, and he really didn't care about the answer. He was trying to trip Jesus up. He said, what's the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus? <clears throat> so tell me. And he was expecting Jesus to give him one of the 10. And Jesus didn't give him one of the 10. Jesus said, here's the greatest. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, the second's like it. Love other people like you love yourself. Because we don't have any trouble. He doesn't say on these three hang the law and the prophecies. He says on these two. Because we don't have any trouble loving ourselves. So he says, love God, love others. That's what's going on in the Thessalonian church. That's why Paul says, look, I see what's happening with you that you're loving each other and you're loving people outside as well. It's the fruit of the Spirit being worked out in practical ways in your church. And folks, if we want to walk, if we want to have the joy of the Lord, it all, like I said, it comes down to love. Loving God, loving others, period. It's also true that when we look at our circumstances, it's not about sticking my head in the sand and and acting like my circumstances don't exist. That is very unwise, because they don't go away. It's about giving Jesus the rightful place in our hearts, in our lives, and trusting him to take us through. That's what it means to put Jesus first. Because as I do that, as I look at this thing, as I look at this trial, as I look at this circumstance, as I look at this hardship, as I look at this persecution, and if I look at that and I am just interacting with that by itself, I'm going to be overwhelmed. But when I put Jesus in front of that thing, when I put my eyes on him in the midst of that difficulty, then I'm going to understand. I'm going to have an additional layer of understanding. That's what was happening with the Thessalonians. That's why as we zoom out, we see this marvelous picture of this church that's doing well in really tough stuff. And we can take the application in our own lives out that we can do well in really tough stuff. The joy of the Lord is my strength. That's why he says it. Exceptional joy. That's why I titled this message that. And Jennifer does our bulletin and, and, and a bunch of other things for the church. It's a real blessing. Uh, and, and she's texting me on Friday. Well, actually, she asked me like Wednesday. I said, I don't have a title yet. So she, on Friday, she says, you got it? No, I don't have a title yet. So yesterday, she's like, do you have a title? No, I don't have a title. So then I finally, I sent her a slide that said, here's the title. And then I wrote her back, don't print that. It's not the title. <laughs> and it was just one of those things. It's like, Lord, I'm wrestling with this. I'm just wrestling with this. But I put my eyes on him instead of my wrestling. And, the, and I had joy in, in the middle of the process. Yeah, minor thing, but exceptional joy. And I thought, Lord, this is exceptional. I, I just love it when you do that. And what he wants for us is to have an exceptional joy. 
The world ain't got it, folks. You're, you have people out there are miserable. I sometimes stand in the line at the supermarket and I, th- and I pray for people in the line and think, yeah, I look at that person, it's like, oh, the long face. And, or, or they just look like they're overwhelmed. Or they're, We were at a memorial service last week and there was a, a, a girl there that was, you know, she was dressed kind of like a ninja, with, but without the swords. But she, and, and Stacy tried to engage her and she said her eyes were just dead. And it was very sad. We prayed for her on our way home. But, but the point is, is that it's a hurting world out there. And one of the things that happens when we walk in the joy of the Lord is our witness is magnified. That's why if you have people around you, they know you're going through really tough stuff, that it's so attractive when people see that and they see that, John, how is it that you're going through X and you just seem so upbeat? Well, it's because I got my eyes on the Lord. I'm not, yeah, he's going to work it out. He's going to walk me through. I'm going to take care of that as much as I can. But it's the joy of the Lord. Exceptional joy communicates something to unbelievers around us as we walk in it. If you don't know Christ this morning, uh, whether here or online, uh, you can have this joy too. You can know the joy of the Lord. It's something that he wants to give you once you come into relationship with him. And if you don't have a relationship with him, it's very simple. You simply pray a prayer like, Lord Jesus, I see I've just been getting tossed around. My life might be a mess or maybe things are going well. I don't know. But I turn from that life where I'm trying to control it all myself and I embrace you. I ask you to come into my heart. I turn from that life and I ask you to come into my my heart and, and to bring these things to you, to bring your Holy Spirit to begin to reorganize my life in a way that brings glory to you, that shines the light on you. That's the transaction. If you haven't done it, I encourage you to do it today. We have no idea what tomorrow brings. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this, as we take a brief look at what it is to walk in the joy of the Lord, as we look at the Thessalonian church and how they were just doing great in the middle of just nasty stuff. Lord, help us to take a lesson from that when we go through things that we can either have our focus on the thing or have our focus on you and experience your joy and your peace in the middle of it. Father, I know, uh, me personally, I have a long ways to go in this. And so I pray, Father, that, that you would just shorten that time, that you would bring to my remembrance more quickly as I go that from that time that I, I react to a situation and I respond by putting Jesus in the I pray that for each one here, each one within the sound of my voice, that you would just graciously pour out your spirit on us. Give us your joy. Give us your peace. Lord, give us your rest as we go along. We thank you for your word this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.